When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Really happy to have with me David Brown, who just wrote a blockbuster story for Rolling Stone about Eric Clapton. It's really a look at the dark side of a pivotal classic rock figure. David, what was the print headline for that story again? I believe it's the dark side of God, with God in quotes, which of course is a reference to the days back in the 60s when when people would say Clapton is God. It was actually graffiti that people would write on the walls in, in London. Clapton is God. It was a, a, a unique form of music criticism. It was. Maybe he was doing it himself. That would have been the real uh, discovery, wouldn't it? That would be something worth investigating. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Who, yeah, who, who was that? Who had that spray can? <laughs> yeah. But this all started because Eric Clapton decided to become a vocal skeptic of COVID vaccines. You know, he lent his voice to a movement that we would say is destructive and just not a very socially helpful thing to do. So when someone behaves like that in their dotage, it kind of prompts an impulse to look back on their life and understand where did this come from? And as you kind of put it in your story, you know, did he change or has he been like this all along? And this is a guy who had not had a whole lot to say about politics in his entire life and career. His biggest statement he had made prior to that, unfortunately, was a slew of horrifying racist comments at a concert in in what year? 1976 in Birmingham, England. In 1976. And I think it's a very interesting question to probe without a real answer in some ways why this hasn't been a bigger part of his narrative. I know that... I didn't really have a huge sense of it growing up that this was something that ever that he had even ever said. It was sometime in the last few years that I really became aware of it. I, I have a I have a theory. One big theory is just an obvious one. He was lucky enough that no one was recording audio. No one was recording video. There's no document of it other than what appeared in the press at the time. And I think that may have saved him. I think if there was audio or video that could have been called up constantly, especially the moment that the internet became a thing, I think it would have become a much bigger deal and much more quickly. And so that's, it's just kind of a fluke that it wasn't recorded. But one of the things that your story does that's so extraordinary is you did something that I'm not sure anyone has done since the time is you found all these people who were there that day and talked to them. And I must say that it has a, a really revelatory and disturbing effect because you get the full impact of, of what he said. And I don't understand how he could possibly reconcile saying England is for white people with the black music that inspired so much of, of his music inspired is, is probably a generous uh, way of putting it 
But not only that, all the black musicians he worked with as peers and expressed his admiration for. And I think that it implies a separation in his mind that is just baffling. I think he's just not, uh, you know, I think, I don't know what to make of it. I, I think it's, it's, it's inexcusable, obviously. And if you read what he said in, in his book about race relations, and I, I know you did, I mean, he, he just, it seems like he gave race about five seconds of thought in his life which is wild taking apart from this racist rant is just, you know, this is a guy who was one of the chief white musicians who drew upon the blues and helped popularize the blues to white audiences. And yet he never thought about the, <laughs> the, the racial history that led to the existence of the blues. It's just, I mean, what, what I, we're going all over the place, but can you even begin to imagine how he never gave this stuff any thought, never integrated these thoughts in his mind, never realized how, how little sense it made for him, for him in particular to be saying this stuff? That's the central contradiction in him and in the story and things that, that we and I tried to grapple with in the piece, that uh, he could say he could have a tirade rant like that, which was also an endorsement of Enoch Powell, kind of a real flamethrower British politician at the time who gave a really incendiary speech, uh, about uh, anti-immigrants with Clapton's clear-cut love of the blues. I mean, you have to give him credit for uh, being very reverential throughout his whole career toward blues men, always talking up B.B. King and Muddy Waters, recording and touring with them. He, he, on one hand, was very supportive of them. And then this thing comes out of his mouth, and he's always blamed it on alcohol, which granted... You know, for much of the 70s and 80s, he was dealing with drug and alcohol problems. And and I will also give him some credit. The reason this sort of came back into the news was there was a documentary that he was involved in about his life about four years ago. And this incident was actually brought up quickly. He told us in an interview at the time that I, I don't think he was concerned that that would be touched upon. But then he, he kind of, you know, agreed that that was part of the story. And he did somewhat, you know, apologize. He said, look, I, I'm not a racist. Uh, I have many black friends. And he said things like that. <laughs> yeah, that whenever you find yourself saying that, you're, you're, you're probably not in a great place. Right. But he's never quite taken full responsibility. When he was promoting that documentary, he gave at least one interview uh, in which he, uh, you know, he did admit that those comments were, as he called them, full tilt racist. And so he's never denied he made those comments. And so I'll give him that. But also at the end of that interview, he still said he said something that he said a few other times when talking about this, where he said he said, well, it's actually kind of funny, though comparing it once to a Monty Python skit where you have like a drunk band member on stage just going off on a on some crazy diatribe. And you don't get the sense that he has fully, even after all these years, absorbed uh, the pain that those comments caused to some of the people in that crowd, most of whom were, were white even, you know, uh, and, and the people who read about those comments in the press afterwards who were fans of his and thought, Oh my God! What what did he say? Uh, so he's acknowledged them and admitted to them, but it's it's a little unclear if he's really absorbed the full impact of what he said. Perhaps if he he has now read your story, he may be getting a new sense of that impact. You know, I, I think probably his 
the most pathetic attempt at his part to kind of grapple with it. And I think, again, this helped rely on the fact that the remarks weren't recorded. Because if you were just reading his autobiography, as I think I did, without really knowing what he had said, he says in his book, oh, you know, I, I, I never cared what color anyone's skin was. And then interesting then, I'm, I'm quoting him now, interesting then that 10 years later, I'd be labeled a racist for making drunken remarks about Enoch Powell on stage in Birmingham, England. Since then, I have learned to keep my opinions to myself, even though that was never meant to be a racial statement. It was more of an attack against the then government policies on cheap labor and the cultural confusion and overcrowding that resulted from what was clearly a greed-based policy. And he goes back, it's basically he's attempting to recast it as a woke statement in favor of, on the behalf of people immigrating to the UK and, and being concerned about their exploitation, which is an utter gaslighting rewrite of history. I can now say for sure after reading your story and really understanding what he said. I, I want to bring up two other things. And, and I also, we're going to be playing uh, Dave Wakeling, uh, the front man of English Beat, spoke to you and he was he was there that day and he points out a lot of things. And I, I want to point out that from an American perspective, I think that people maybe aren't super familiar with what Enoch Powell stood for. He was, I think, as Dave said to you, you know, uh, like a George Wallace, he would, and then I probably have to explain who George Wallace was to certain people, but depending on how old you are. But, you know, he, he was a virulently anti-immigrant, racist, right-wing politician, like a, a pretty frightening figure. And I think that some of the cultural import of that is lost, would even be lost in America at the time, although it really wasn't reported at the time in America. And that's another thing to understand. It just it just somehow got lost overseas, right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, that was one of the interesting things in my research. I dug around in newspapers of 1976 to see what coverage you got over here? Because like you, I, I, I never heard about it at the time, and I didn't hear about it for, oh God, it feels like decades later. I found one little item in a sort of rock gossip column in a, uh, in a Midwestern newspaper. And it didn't even quote it at length. It just said, you know, he made some racist comments or, or something along those lines. It didn't quote at length. It wasn't a big article about it. It was just like a little item tucked away amongst the mother bunch of other rock news items of 1976. Uh, and that was really shocking uh, to me in a way, or but maybe, you know, it just, uh, you know, this in the pre-internet world, then again, that's how things work. Something happened at a concert in Birmingham, England, that was not, as you say, recorded, filmed. It wasn't uh, a, a big, uh, big media event. It wasn't like the uh, concert for Bangladesh or something. You know, it was just a gig. And it wasn't even some of these comments weren't even mentioned in the Birmingham newspaper you know, review a few days later, uh, which was also strange. But they clearly happened, but they just did not make it across uh, the ocean to this country. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free to play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. But the thing is, in the English music world, it was always of sort of undeniable significance because it led directly to the launch of the Rock Against Racism movement, right? Absolutely did. There was a a, a writer, musician named uh, Red Saunders, who I spoke with for the piece. Uh, he wasn't at the show, but he was read the comments afterwards, and he was kind of into that genre of classic rock at the time, and he was just just astonished, as everyone was who I talked to. I mean, what was, what was the common thread of people who attended that show, uh, of the people I've spoken to, but also their friends, was that it was the last thing they all expected. You know, here was a guy who loved the blues, he loved reggae. Uh, he, as you say, he was not a an outspoken political figure. They went because they loved his music, and to hear that coming out of his mouth was really shocking for the people who were there. But it was also really startling for people like Saunders, who were reading about it a few days later in the paper and thinking, "What are you talking about? Eric Clapton's not like that. He doesn't say those things." And and he wrote a letter that was printed in the music press, criticizing uh, Clapton. And that, in turn, led to, uh, uh, he included the phrase rock against racism in it, and that spawned that whole movement, which went on for a number of years with concerts over uh, in the UK and some here, featuring the English Beat, The Clash, any number of of, uh, punk bands at the time, as well as uh, black music bands also working together, doing these shows on stage to to show a a unity and to protest that kind of attitude. So the last point I wanted to make about that is I think that once people started to become aware of those comments in in some way, I think a sort of rationalization that prevailed was, oh, well, you know, this was a guy in the grips of a horrendous addiction and was so drunk he possibly didn't even know what he was saying, that he was, you know, that it was just this one-time aberration from a really troubled drunk guy, and in fact, the rest of his life proved that those weren't his real views. The problem with that is that it then turns out that he went on to praise Enoch Powell again. So he, those were his, <laughs> those were his views, and that's you know how we're expressed. But those were his views, and that's that really confounds that excuse. I think that that just kind of knocks it out. I'm, I'm afraid. It, it, it does. I mean, he returned to Powell several more times, and again, it was never with any sort of um, sense of truly understanding the impact of those words or any kind of regret. I think there was a there was a big degree of regret missing in a lot of the comments that he said since then, and again it hasn't it, it's it hasn't fully mollified a lot of people who were there uh, for sure. I mean, some there might be some who think, okay, look, he copped to it, he copped to what he said, but his explanations always kind of fall short for a lot of people. We're gonna play a conversation that David had with Dave Wakeling, who's the guitarist and singer for the English Beat. And Dave was in the crowd in Birmingham in 1976 when, or was he backstage? (laughs) He was in the crowd. He was just a 20-year-old kid. And and I should add, a a Clapton fan. You know, he'd even, uh, he said he hitchhiked from Birmingham to London to see Blind Faith 
1969 and play their show in Hyde Park. So that's that's a fan. <laughs> that's a, that's a long ways from Birmingham to London. The English Beat is a great band. Remind everyone a little bit about who they are and what they represented. Uh, the English Beat were an interracial uh, ska pop, I guess you could call them, band of the early 80s, who um, also then be, they broke up a little while later, and, became, and two of them, including Dave, became general public, which maybe other fans know as well. But they, they kind of brought that, you know, that ska, kind of more uh, poppy kind of reggae sort of into the mainstream. They had their moment on MTV, Sooner or Later is, is one of their songs that probably people may know from that time, a terrific single. Um, so they were a very important band in terms of musical and cultural diversity. And, and there was nothing gimmicky or cheesy about it. It was all very uh, sincere. Absolutely. All right, so let's hear Dave Wakeling's account of being at what was increasingly one of the most infamous uh, classic rock concerts of all time. So we went with some school friends, and everybody had had a few drinks, really. I mean, that was what was done. But um, it started to form a, a sort of murmur throughout the crowd. What the fuck did he just say? And it wasn't that nobody had heard it before. Our dads used to spout the same quite often, you know, some of us. And uh, But we were surprised to hear it from him. And I think more than anything else, we were offended because the Birmingham was like an industrial city. It was Detroit, kind of. It made motor cars. And in a perverse sort of way, it had become more integrated because of all the numbers of men working on the line with each other. Right. After a few years on the track, you start to realize, you know, you've got more in common in your family stories than your differences. Huh. And so, and that sort of reflected itself in the pubs in Birmingham, which is the barometer of everything. Mm-hmm, uh, of course. Was that, was that they were a bit more integrated. Uh, there weren't really pubs you couldn't go into because of your colour. You might be a distinct minority, but most of the pubs were, we noticed, more integrated than other cities. We didn't really notice that till the beat started and we started playing further down south in London and you realise they could kind of afford to run parallel cities. And that's really, I think, where the offence over Eric Clapton's comments came from. Huh. He was he was talking from a rather privileged southern uh, position, which I think he still holds as 17th wealthiest man in uh, Surrey. I don't know if he resents or adores the others, who knows. It came from this attitude of, like his wife had been bothered in Harrods by an Arab or something. Yep. Somebody had slapped yep. a bottom or something. Well, we, <laughs> Eric's always been, you know, hot on the sanctity of marriage. And, um, <laughs> it just seemed uh, tone deaf, really, because in Birmingham, we were having to deal with much greater degrees of immigration, and we'd actually managed to keep a lid on it, most of the younger generation anyway, that would turn into with Eric's help, <laughs> the rock against racism and two-tone and all that followed from it. And, and so it seemed to be out of place, really, that it wasn't his place to say that there. But right, right. We had, we had much more sophisticated problems than he was having to deal with. Right. And we were still going to be there the next day dealing with them after he'd had his rant and got taken off probably yeah. to the Midland Hotel to stay right. in Enoch's room. <laughs> <laughs> And what I heard too, what I also heard about that night was he 
he would say something, and then maybe they'd play a song, and then he would keep talking. And it wasn't just like a one-time statement. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it was a few times. So it, that's why the, the murmuring started to get louder and louder. <laughs> Did he just fucking play that again? <laughs> I have, I have like kind of a, like, you know, this wasn't filmed or taped, but I guess people took notes or something. And, uh, you know, he was saying things like, do we have any foreigners in the audience tonight? If so, please put up your hands. Where are you? Well, wherever you are, I think you should all just leave, not just leave the hall, leave our country. I don't want you here in the room or in the country. Does that all sound familiar to you? Yeah, that's yeah. how it started, and then it kind of degenerated more into just calling them wogs. Yes, uh, that came next. Stop, <laughs> st yeah, stop Britain from becoming a black colony, get the foreigners out, get, keep Britain white. Yeah. It was so weird. I mean, the whole thing was built on spies. Enoch Powell wanted to be fucking Viceroy of India in 1947. He wanted to rule the place, and... The Labour government, who he despised ever after that, gave India independence instead. So they never had another viceroy, and he wanted the job. And ever after that, he was mad keen on making sure they couldn't live in his yard. It was pathetic, yeah. horrible. And when he didn't work in England, he had to move over to Northern Ireland, because that was the, the last place he could keep stoking a sectarian fight. Yeah. Oh, man. Disgraceful chap. What a waste of a good education and uh, very sad, really. But, right, right. you know, you see it happen. It, it's not rare. And Eric's done it again now on the vaccine business. Uh, right. We do see this. We, we we all have encores that go Archie Bunker on us. And you just, you just try and tolerate it and try and remember the good times. <laughs> no, oh, yeah. Don't mind well, 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 at the end of that show, you and your friends did it. Uh, sour you on, on him and his music? Yes, I've never played a record since, with the exception of White Room and Badge. We all got into the foyer after the concert, and it was as loud as the concert. People talking louder and louder in Birmingham accents about, what the bleeding hell is he fucking doing on about? What a cunt! Everybody wanting to know what they could do about it. And we all walked round, had another pint, and then stormed off home to write to the NME. That's it. I'm writing to the NME. <laughs> yeah. The NME got a truck full of uh, letters, and they printed a whole page of them, which didn't include mine, which I was furious about at the time, so I thought mine was better than some of the others. Anyway, I didn't get published. Uh, a bit like my last album, not getting reviewed in... Rolling Stone. Oh. <laughs> you take the rough with the spear. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you wrote a letter to the enemy about the Clapton show then? There yeah, were, yeah, indeed. Yeah. And lots and lots of people did. Right. And uh, out of that furore was born Rock Against Racism. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I've spoken to Red Saunders about it. Yeah, in his letter yeah. that kicked it I mean, off. So, I, so I, guess, yeah, I guess that was the good side of the, good, the upshot of all this. Well, I mean, it, it, in fact, for one drunken rant in Birmingham, where everybody had heard it a million times, <laughs> and it hadn't changed nothing yet, he actually changed the world in the opposite direction, hmm. which was very decent of him, really. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it was it was out of line, and he sort of apologised and said it was the drink. Right. But we know that. The drink doesn't make you make up sophisticated lies. It just makes you tell the truth too loud at the wrong time to the wrong people. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. So that was David Brown talking to Dave Wakeling of The English Beat about his experience seeing Eric Clapton in 1976. He went out to see an Eric Clapton concert in 1976 and got a bit more than he bargained for. Now, David, one of the big scoops in your article was the fact that Eric Clapton chose a charity of sorts. He obviously has become a vocal skeptic of the COVID-19 vaccines and he decided to help out this band who goes around protesting what exactly? (laughs) They uh, it's it's an organization called Jam for Freedom. They're over there in the UK. We all like freedom. It's it's sort of a ragtag group of musicians who do outdoor shows in public spaces, parks, etc. This all sounds good so far. Freedom, outdoor shows. I, I'm, I, I don't see the problem. They do Van Morrison, Brown Eyed Girl covers, the whole thing. But uh, they are basically protesting the lockdown. So they call themselves an anti-lockdown band. They're also vaccine skeptics, I would say. And I think that comes out in a song that uh, occasionally some of them play, which, is, uh, which has the, um, the chorus, uh, Stick that poison vaccine up your arse. Hmm. And uh, that's not that's not uh, we should say the preferred delivery mode. <laughs> this is true. This is true. They're taking a, a bigger scale anatomical approach to the problem. But they uh, have been doing this for a, a number of months. Uh, and Clapton got wind of it somehow when they uh, did a performance in in Hyde Park in London. And there was some police arrest activity and so on. And uh, they started a GoFundMe campaign to help uh, with some uh, car repairs, gas, legal fees, et cetera, that they needed to deal with that situation. And much to their surprise, they looked at the GoFundMe page in the back one day in the spring, and there was uh, a 1,000-pound donation from Eric Clapton. How did you dig this up, by the way? I had heard or read somewhere that he had some affiliation with a group called Jam for Freedom. And so I just went to their Instagram and there was a photograph right there of the leader of the group standing next to Clapton next to a white van. 
And it turned out that, and I reached out to that guy, and he confirmed that, yes, uh, Clapton did give them money, and the white van that they were standing next to in that photograph was Clapton's own family van, which he donated to Jam for Freedom so they could go from kind of gig to gig. And he also, uh, Clapton needed it back after a while because it was the family van. But after a while, uh, he, he took it back, but he also gave them money, which the leader of the group wouldn't uh, specify how much, but he did confirm that Clapton did give them money to help buy a new vehicle so they could uh, you know, continue on their way to, and, and kind of spread that uh, anti-lockdown word around the UK. So he was absolutely, crushed, uh, no question that Clapton was uh, supportive of Jam for Freedom. He kind of saw them as, um, he told the, the leader of the group, that he saw them as kind of carrying on that tradition of not just you know playing rock and sort of questioning the establishment, uh, almost like what they did in the 60s. And I think in, in his mind, it seems I think Clapton uh, makes that connection. And, and it's interesting to, I even spoke to one of these con- conservative pundits who is a big uh, fan of what's going on, and and he had he made the same connection. He said, you know, look, what Clapton's doing now is what he was doing in the '60s. He's, he's, and that's what rock and roll is all about. You know, rebelling against the establishment and conformity, and that's how that's being framed in that world now. Uh, it's kind of an odd thing to see, you know, Eric Clapton go from guitar hero to cultural right hero, but uh, these are strange times we live in. So maybe that's just another example. This vaccine skepticism has not been a sort of passing quick thing or a fluke. This, again, a guy who's really not had that many causes. <laughs> one, of, one of his only other one was was pro fox hunting. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, what can you say? Uh, which at least tracks with everything, you know, that that at least you can make sense of that, given that he's an incredibly rich old-fashioned English guy who lives in the countryside, like, at least you can kind of just, you can question the the correctness of the cause, certainly, but at least it, you can kind of track it. You can see where it comes from, uh, from him fashioning himself some kind of old-fashioned English country gentleman. But anyway, so he went from his last cause being uh, pro-fox hunting, brave stance, to really harping on and on about his concerns about the vaccines and talking to some fringe outlets and just deciding to dive into this and he made it impossible to ignore. And I think that's what led us here, right? Yeah, I mean, it seems to be in looking into his life, reading his book, talking to people, I mean, I think there's a lot sort of going on there. I do think the contrarian impulse that he has in him to kind of just do the opposite of what people say or just kind of uh, be kind of impulsive, you know, he like he'll leave a band here or there, just, you know, like John Mayall's band, he joins it, makes a record and suddenly is gone before everybody knows and doesn't really, you know, just just goes, just follows his instincts in that way. He also, you know, admits in his book, he's sort of a uh, prone to, you know, conspiracy theories, especially involving the government. Uh, he does seem to have a credulous side, like this crazy story in his book about getting a uh, a, a phone call out of the blue from this woman in the 80s who knew all about his personal life and his troubled relationship at that point with his wife, Patty Boyd, and she recommended he do all of these crazy things like incantations and cut himself a bit and mix and, and write, you know, his name and Patty's name in blood on a mirror. And, and he just like went along with this. Right. And then, then as you mentioned, at the next le- it went way beyond that. He went to New York 
and by his account, had sex with this woman because she told him that would definitely fix up his mystical uh, energy problems or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. She told him the next thing you need to do is have sex with a virgin. And he said, well, you know, again, his own account here. He said, well, gee, uh, who would that be? And she said, oh, I just happened to be a virgin. And so he just flies to New York and they have a fling. And so, I mean, it adds up to this portrait of someone who... Um, who told that story about himself in his own book and no one told him maybe leave that one out, right? I know. <laughs> I, it's one of the craziest uh, admissions. Uh, I'm sure, like like me, Brian, you've read a lot of rock memoirs. Yeah. But, no, I, 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 pushed, I pushed to make sure that ended up in your piece because I, I, uh, I never forgot that. That was... I. Yeah, I'm at a loss for words. That, that was, yeah, it, right, exactly. We've read a lot of rock memoirs, and certainly there's also a history of people moronically incriminating themselves and stuff in their memoirs. So at least he, did, at least he didn't uh, mention any felonies. But it's a mind-boggling story, and it's not flattering. And this leads me to something I wanted to talk about. I think that people want to make it easy when we find out bad things about someone who's a creative person who some people admired. They want to make it easy and say, oh, but they were never good anyway. And I think that's way, way too easy. And I, I think that Eric Clapton is a great guitar player and a very, very important one. I think that actually younger people have trouble understanding the important part. They've just seen him even before this as just kind of this doofus in a suit, you know, playing these very tasteful to them boring kind of guitar licks and just kind of a generally worthless character. And look, I, I see that if you especially have a very superficial latter day perspective on him. Look, do I absolutely get that. But, you know, I mean, we know and anyone who knows about rock in the 60s knows that, that if he took just his work on that Blues Breakers album alone, he would go down as one of the most influential guitar players who ever lived. Uh, you know, the, the he that tone, the way he cranked up in the studio and had this incredibly distorted but beautiful guitar tone and these fluid blues-based, well, in that, those, in that case, actual blues licks was utterly transformative to the way people played in rock bands. And yes, other people, you know, Buddy Guy did something very similar and he was always taking from a series of black bluesmen. But, I mean, you know, Clapton was very important guitar player and that you know and, that, and I'm just talking about one of his bands I mean and then you know then you could go on and on he he was extremely influential you know I mean you wouldn't have Eddie Van Halen without him by Eddie Van Halen's own admission so you can't really take you, you have to have a, a sort of deliberate erasure of history to say he wasn't an important musician I guess greatness can always be argued over but the the importance can't be I think even his greatest detractors would probably uh, seed him the Layla album, right? I, I don't think anyone could kind of... Uh, admittedly, you, you know, you have, you have Dwayne Allman there and you have, you know, and someone else wrote the the code of the Layla and there's all that. I mean, you can't, you certainly can't give him 100% credit, but, you know, he, he's a big part of that album. And that's, uh, you know, you, you, if you like rock music at all, I, you know, that's a, obviously a great album. So it's not as simple as just saying he always sucked. Right. And, and the, you know, you also have to give him props for... Uh, not just overcoming his addictions, but, you know, starting a, a treatment center for it, which is not something a lot of his peers in, you know, classic rock have done. And, you know, he has had his share of tragedies, losing his son, anyone who's a parent. You know, I remember when that happened and it was uh, an awful thing. The, the, it's uh, indescribably awful. And, you know, you're, I think our hearts went out to him when that happened. You know, it wasn't, you know, it, it was a horrible accident. It wasn't even there when it happened and it was just uh 
It was a terrible thing. And so grappling with him and his past and, and his current vaccine uh, views and then balancing it out with the greatness of some of his music, like you said, uh, is is tricky. It's complicated. It's not it's not a um, it's it's not as simple as, oh, this is a, a you know, a bad person who should just be dismissed. Even Dave Wakeling, who who was there at that concert, admitted that there's still a couple of Clapton songs he can't stop listening to. Right, right. Yeah, it, it is interesting that some of the people who I talked to who were there, uh, like, basically can't listen to his music anymore. Um, you know, I was doing this story. I was pulling up records of his I hadn't played in a while that I have in my collection, and and really still enjoying like a 461 Ocean Boulevard or parts of Slow Hand. You know, during his kind of peak 70s era and thing, being reminded, oh yes, you know he. He made some terrific music up through then. But then at the same time, there's this cloud that hangs over it now. Can you imagine what it would be like if you were 25 years old or so and people are calling you God? You know, to go back to a point we made early on. I mean, you're going to feel like I I'm invincible. Anything I do is going to be pretty good and accepted. So that was today's Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. Thanks again to David Brown. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, Rolling Stone Music Now is a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on, on Apple Podcasts if you can. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.